chapter 2, starting at verse 13. And if you have a church Bible, it's on page 966. The escape to Egypt. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt... I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. The return to Nazareth. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream he withdrew to the district of Galilee and, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thank you very much, Richard. So, do you know when it's Christmas, do you remember that? Do you know when it's Christmas and you're all sat round the table and you're exceedingly well fed and some of us are slightly well watered and these conversations sort of begin to build up. Do you have, did you, any of you have those? These sort of random conversations about subjects that are sort of really strange and odd and eccentric. Well, that's what happened in my house a couple of days ago, a few days ago, uh, when I have, uh, we had, um, I, was, I think it was even nine of us around the table rammed in like this. Anyway, somebody started the conversation about what does constitute a proper Christmas movie? Okay, what is a Christmas movie? And um, I don't know if you've got any ideas what you would call um, a proper Christmas movie. Anybody? Yep. It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, you know, I don't think anyone said that one, but that, that's the, the, actually the sort of classic one, isn't it? Okay, any others people think of as Christmas movies? 
Muppets Christmas Carol. Yes, we had that one. That's brilliant. Hmm? Love Actually, yeah, we thought of that one as well. Great. Uh, And maybe Nativity, which we all decided was the worst Christmas movie ever. Uh, Sorry, Martin Freeman and all of us who made it. So anyway, this conversation sort of evolved and floated. And then someone put into the mix The Great Escape. Do you remember that one? About 1960-63, Steve McQueen, heartthrob of the time. Um, and he was an American prisoner of war in a prisoner of war camp in, um, in um, Poland, I think it was. Um, and the movie's all about, um, sort of based on a true story, in which there were no Americans in real life, I might add. It was all Brits and Commonwealth. But in the real story, they uh, planned this great big escape, and a lot of them, there was a mass exodus, and they... Uh, Got, a, got away, but I think only three made it back, but the rest were recaptured. Anyway, this is often showed at Christmas time. There was a mass argument around the table as to whether that made it a Christmas movie and what was it about it that made the Christmas movie. An argument which I may say we never really resolved, so if you have any um, ideas, do let me know afterwards. So I would love to nail this one because it was my idea. Uh, anyway, there was a brilliant motorcycle chase scene. Do you remember where he gets up through the fields and then over the fence? Anyway, the, um, the, the ch- my two children, they've got uh, American other halves and they were utterly mystified as to how a prisoner of war movie could ever remotely be constituted a, uh, a Christmas movie. Uh, and we, uh, on reflection, we Brits couldn't work it out either. So uh, we had to leave it hanging. But here in the Bible, we have had, you see where I'm going, another great escape. Okay, hopefully you spotted the link there. It's all I could come up with yesterday morning, and I was quite pleased with it. So if you don't like it, tough. That's what you're getting. Okay, but here we have another great escape. It's the one of the Holy Family going into Egypt to flee from evil King Herod. King Herod. And what he'd planned to do, he was going to plan to, he was planning to slaughter all the baby boys that were under the age of two in Bethlehem. And the reason he was going to do that, well, that was all the fault of those wise men, the Magi, not so wise, because when they were chatting to Herod, they used the words king of the Jews, and they dropped that into the conversation Uh, when they were on their way to visit the baby. And that was kind of a massive bombshell and threw Herod into a spin. And the Bible says in chapter 2, verse 3, that not only Herod, but the whole of Jerusalem was disturbed by their words. And I I was wondering, why would the whole of Jerusalem be disturbed by those words? And all I could come up with really was maybe somehow they were, they were sort of disturbed because they suddenly realized maybe they had all missed the birth of the promised Messiah, the King of the Jews. And for Herod, well, if Christ was indeed the King of the Jews, where did that leave him? No wonder he reacted as he did. And he reacted entirely in keeping with his character. After all, this is his list of murders already done. His wife, three of his sons, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his uncle, and anybody else he thought might be having it in for him. Nice guy, not. So he reacts entirely in keeping with that, and he says, right, let's just swipe out all the baby boys under two in Bethlehem, and then problem is solved. But for Joseph, an angel comes in another dream to him. Do you remember? Angel came to him in the dream before 
Jesus' birth, telling him that Mary was with child and he should keep her as his wife, take her as his wife, and name the baby Jesus. So he sensibly realizes this is a bit of a trend now, and he takes notice of the angel in his dream. And obediently, him and Mary do that moonlight flit to Egypt, and that's where they stay until the death of Herod. Now here, we have something very countercultural. Here we have God showing us that the way to respond to violence is not to retaliate. In this story of violence and power struggles, Jesus is no more than a passive participant. And God meets the plot against Jesus' life actually by withdrawing. God is almost a hidden actor in this part of the story. Now, in the mirror story of the Israelites' deliverance from Egypt in Moses' time, when Pharaoh will not let the people go, God does act. He is very present. He brings a series of awful plagues on the people. He brings death to the firstborn of all the Egyptians, including Pharaoh's firstborn. And Moses, who's himself a murderer, is the one to take God's people out of, out of Egypt through the Red Sea to start their journey into the Promised Land. But now we're having a new chapter of the story of God's people. A new chapter where he's establishing a new kingdom to replace the one that was founded on violence. And now things are very, very different. Herod and his sons, well, they're not killed and they continue in power. And in contrast, God sends his son Jesus to die as the innocent one for the sins of all the others, all of us prefigured by the death of those innocent baby boys in Bethlehem. And just as God did not intervene to prevent the crucifixion, neither does he send angelic armies to prevent the slaughter of all those innocent baby boys. Violence in the world is the polar opposite of what God wants. On what we call Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in a procession of peace. He did not ride in on a war horse with a sword laying waste to everything in his path. God does not intervene to stop all the violence and all the suffering in the world. And what we see on the news makes that very, very clear. Just this morning I was reading about um, um, uh, a group of ultra-Orthodox Jews in New York and someone has burst in and, uh, with a knife and stabbed at least six of them. God did not intervene to stop them. They were celebrating Hanukkah, one of their sacred, sacred festivals. No, God does not, clearly not, intervene to stop all the violence and suffering. Instead, through Jesus, he brings a reign of peace which challenges the world and its values. From his very infancy, Jesus' life embraces vulnerability and rejects the use of violence to impose his will. On the other hand, 
Herod's reaction to what he saw as a threat against his kingship reveals the response of unbridled worldly power to the existence of a realm of truth and righteousness which it simply cannot control. Herod's appalling actions are reenacted daily on our news feeds, in our newspapers, on our TVs, with dreadful regularity. Images of bewildered children being carried by their desperate mothers out of war zones abound. Jesus and his family knew what it was to flee from someone else's quarrel as well. But we need not despair. We need not. The Herods of this world will be held accountable for their actions. They will face judgment at the foot of the throne of the Lamb when they come face to face with truth, with a capital T. Maybe God does not intervene in the here and now, but he will bring righteousness and justice for the innocent and the oppressed. He knows what it's like because he was one of them once. Back to the story. Once the threat to Jesus is over with the death of Herod, Joseph has another dream and he's told it's safe now to return to your homeland. But in what the gospel writer Matthew sees as fulfillment of scripture, they don't return to Bethlehem, but they go on to an unimpressive little village in Galilee, a place called Nazareth. And there they settle quietly, unnoticed by those in power, including Archelaus, uh, the evil king who succeeded Herod. And in Nazareth, Jesus grows up and we hear little more about his childhood until the time is come for his ministry to begin. God's purposes working out in quiet obscurity. So I just want to bring out one final point for you to consider today. It's a bit too near Christmas for anything deep and complex, or at least it is to my turkey-fuddled brain. But there is a huge amount of rich and resonant theology in this very unlikely-looking passage. And if you wanted to go and study more, I promise you, you'd be richly rewarded. But here's my thought for today. What kind of Messiah are we looking for? Are we looking for one who would come with power and violence and aggression and sort out all the evil in the world by reacting for like with like? But violence simply breeds more violence, does it not? Or are we looking for a Messiah who grew up quietly in the world, withdrawing from all the threats against him until the time was right? for God's plans to come to fruition. A Messiah who is prepared prepared to become a sacrificial victim at the right time, not as a baby slaughtered on the whim of a tyrant, but as an adult choosing to die, nailed to the cross, at a time when he can say, it is finished, it is complete. A Messiah who ushers in a new way of living. One which he lived out himself. A life of service 
of love, of turning the other cheek, of going the extra mile, of love and concern for the vulnerable and the weak, not of power grabbing and oppression. What kind of Messiah do you really want? In the birth of the Christ child, prophecies are fulfilled. God does not only come among his people, but he enters into the depths of their exile and suffering. Christ comes to us as the true king, but also as the sacrificial victim who will reconcile us to our heavenly father. Oh, thanks be to God for a Messiah like that. Let's pray.